Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Leading with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Jerry Adams. Well, thank you for introducing yourself. And let me say, Jerry Adams, let's describe Jerry Adams. I think Jerry Adams, to some, a heroic freedom fighter leading his country to unity and peace and prosperity. To others, a figure of hate and seen as a man of terror and violence. To me, the guy that I saw very, very, very often in close proximity, particularly with Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn, who we've just bumped into, and an integral part of what became the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. So, something of an enigma. It was only because we persuaded you and your government to embrace peace. And when Mr. Blair changed British government policy to actually talking to Sinn Féin, imagine, I just imagine that the British government wouldn't talk to a person who had a mandate as an MP leading a political party which had uh, a declared publicised peace objective. But you moved before that, in a sense. Yeah, of course we did, yeah. But, but, but you can only move so far, and in fairness to you and to Jonathan and particularly to Tony, it was only when you came in with that big majority and the new government and new kids in the block that you you turned things the way they were turned. So uh, you talked to my predecessor, a member of Parliament, Penrith, and the Board of Whitelaw, I guess, back in the uh, 70s. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. 73, 72, uh, 73. Do you remember him? I do remember him. Do I you? Do, I do remember him. Um, what, what was your sense? I mean, we're not taking you back to your youth. What, what was your sense of those early days, Sunningdale, Willie Whitelaw, all, all that period? Just to be in the context, you were part of the delegation that met Whitelaw. Yeah, I was one of the delegation. Martin McGuinness was, we were the two younger, just by coincidence, the, the, the two youngest members of the delegation. I was 23, he was 22. On reflection, I think what Willie Whitelaw attempted to do was brave. You know, th- th- this place was up in flames. It was, wasn't that long after Bloody Sunday, uh, where the British paratroop regiments had shot uh, all those people in Derry, and the Stormont. Parliament was was prorogued. It was a a unionist-dominated regime. Uh, so in fairness to Willie White, what he tried to do was was brave. Now, it didn't last very long. You know, the the discussions were fair enough. I had actually been involved. I had been interned without trial, and I had been released. And myself and another Republican called Dahi O'Connell had negotiated out arrangements whereby those talks would take place. So there was a wee bit of sensible work being done. But it, it fell apart in weeks. Like, I don't even know how long it lasted. And you, you ended up back in jail pretty ended quickly. ended up back in Long Cash. Well, a, a year later. I mean, we've learned an awful lot since. And just interestingly enough, about 40 years later, for some reason, we were all in Downing Street and it lasted longer than was intended. We all missed our flights and the government arranged for us to be flown back in a a private plane and there we were in exactly the same airport it was a military airport that you'd been at 40 years ago Martin McGuinness and Martin McGuinness and I both 
twigged at the same time as we were as we were getting off the bus. He said we were here, <laughs> we were here forty years ago. Pretty amazing to be there as part of that delegation in your early twenties, and you've been at it all that time. You've been doing this all this time, and I'd like to know. We talked about you being in jail and interned. How many times have you been in jail? How many times have you been asked whether you're a member of the IRA? I know the answers that you've given every time you've been asked it. And where do you feel you are on the overall journey that you've been trying to get your whole life? Well, uh, there's rarely an interview that I do, particularly with British journalists, that I'm not asked, uh, (laughs) was or am I a member of the IRA? Why don't you just say proudly yes? Well, because I would be telling lies, and you know we can't be telling lies about these these matters. Now, what was your question? I've been doing it all this time. How many times in jail? Well, I, I served four and a half years in jail. I was in the prison ship Maidstone. We had a prison ship in Belfast Harbour, mm. which sat in sewage from its the trains, and we were kept below decks. That was in 1972. I was then shipped up to Long Cash, kept there for a while, released then to take part in those talks, put back again, uh, was in Belfast Prison at least twice, was in the eight blocks of Long Cash uh, for a very short period and spent most of my time in the cages of Long Cash. Interestingly enough, uh, the Supreme Court in London found that my imprisonment was unlawful Mm -hmm. just last year, that that I was unlawfully detained. In these descriptions of your time in Long Cash and elsewhere, one often gets the impression that these kinds of internment actually built a sense of solidarity between you and other Republicans. It gave you an opportunity to get to know each other better, to do educational programs together, and that actually it built more cohesion. Is that right? Is that how it felt, that you were developing deeper bonds through internment? Well, certainly there was within the prisons, both with women prisoners in Armagh prison and within the prison I was in, uh, there was a prison community, and most famously that was expressed in the hunger strikes of 1981, where 10 men died in hunger strike. There were uh, hundreds of, of men imprisoned. Uh, so there, 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 there surely was a bond uh, developed, and most of it is reflecting back on it, uh, apart from the hunger strikes, will will reflect back on the funny things that happened and the, the, you know, the, the crack uh, not I'll get on the, on the crack, Jerry. This is an unfair question, but I the cliche we have about West Belfast is very, very outspoken, flamboyant people, and you often have a reputation for being quite sort of controlled in your language and quite almost politician-like. Is that right that you're you're compared to many of your neighbours? You'd be seen as somebody I'm who's dull. more careful with I'm, words. I'm, I'm very dull. Nobody ever goes out with me. I'm no use. But you're pretty, ca- you're, you're pretty careful with your words. Well, for what it's worth, you know, and I make as many mistakes as anybody that talks as often as I have to talk. Uh, but I try to, you know, you're talking to too many, you're talking to so many audiences. So uh, here I'm t- talking to people, I presume, and in Britain, so I'm, I'm trying to give a, an outline. But anyway, the point I'm making is you, you have to be, and I want to stress, I make as many mistakes as anybody. You know, what we're trying to do here is unprecedented, right? We have, by dint of the Good Friday Agreement, a peaceful way to end the union with England. 
So to do that, we have to persuade people who are for the union with England to vote for United Ireland. So we all the time have to be trying to make sure that we don't defend them or that we are what we're saying can be persuasive and that we can convince them. So that's that's an utterly democratic, peaceful strategy, that approach. When did the thinking develop? And you, so you said you talked about it being Tony Blair, but long before that, you were starting to think about different ways of, of bringing to the, the first, this to the The first end. thing that I wrote on this was in 1976 from Long Cash. And it was around the time of the peace, people here in Ireland, and the peace people was formed when the British Army shot the driver of an IRA getaway car, shot him dead, and the, the car careered out of uh, control and ploughed into a family who were out walking, and children, the Maguire children, were killed. So the peace women... And that entire sort of phenomenon arose out of that awful incident. And I, I then reflected on that in a little pamphlet which I wrote. And it, it started to probe at what is peace and how do you get peace and, you know, and so on. So that was 1976. And how important were your discussions with Father Alec Reed? Well, Father Alec Reed was a, a, a redemptorist priest, and he and Father Des Wilson lived in West Belfast, so they knew what was going on in the neighbourhoods, and they knew all of the aggression. And the the whole line from the British and from the Irish governments was: this was criminality, this was gangsterism. Uh, we have to smash it, we have to subdue it, and and so on. So he and I were talking, and there was a huge amount of condemnation of the IRA from the Irish government, from the Catholic Church hierarchy, and so on. And I, I said, to them, if these folks want the IRA to stop, why don't they come up with an alternative? So he went away and he tried to get an alternative. And in the course of that, he, he developed some principles which I think are fundamental to any peace process. You got to talk. You got to listen. Out of that arises all sorts of other little things. You, know, you, you can't decide who you're going to talk to. You know, if you're going to talk to Sinn Féin, you can't decide that Martin McGuinness can't be in the delegation. You know, if you're going to talk to the DUP, you can't decide that Ian Paisley can't be in it. So, so there's all sorts of little, very good bullet points that would enforce or reinforce any negotiating position. So what, what was the essence of his position? Treat people with respect, talk to people, find a way forward and look for an alternative. And he, he was just central to that. And he was also tenacious. And was the alternative he was always looking for a peaceful one? Yes, of course. But, but, you, were, but you were at the time operating, operating a, a dual-track strategy. Well, we weren't operating any dual strategy. The fact is there was a war going on and it was being conducted by the different protagonists, the British forces, their surrogates and within loyalism and then the, the Irish Republican Army. But something changed in the overall thinking. When I came out of prison, a, a, a group of us started to try and reboot Sinn Féin. Now, Sinn Féin was an honourable organisation and, and did lots of good work, but it wasn't a political organisation in the sense that we now see it. So we, we, we And it's very hard to organise politically when you're underground. It's very hard when you're... But Sinn Féin was banned at the time. Uh, so it's very hard to do the type of open political work that you would be used to, Alistair, mm. if you're, if you're, you know, if a meeting like this would be raided. You know, in the old days, we would have all ended up in a long case because this would be an illegal assembly. So that was happening. Uh, so, so you had the, the efforts to try and get a peace process, the efforts to try and 
Bill Sinn Féin as a relevant radical political party and the ongoing war. All right, Jerry, Rory, let's take a quick break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. This is a program largely about politics and the way that politics works and how you compromise. And I wanted just a second to touch on Terence O'Neill and your experience in the 60s and how he failed. Was there an opportunity there that was lost and how was that lost? Well, I was only a kid, but I remember meeting with his uh, children in Australia. They moved to Australia. I remember meeting them subsequently. And they said that he was always bitterly disappointed that he hadn't uh, done more. Uh, but Turn, what, what, was, what was your impression of that, though, as a young man growing up in West Belfast? Did you have any sympathy for what he was trying to do, or was, was he seen as the enemy? It's difficult to answer that uh, with the benefit of all the, the time. I was involved in housing agitation, and we had formed a housing action group in West Belfast because people were being held and were being housed in dreadful conditions and there weren't enough and a lot of so on. So if I'd asked you about him then, the, the Jerry Adams of 1967, 68, and I'd said, what do you think about this guy, Terence O'Neill? What would your answer have been then? That he should have just given in on the civil rights demands. They were very moderate. They were very, very modest. You know, but, people, but I guess, but can we not see the political problems he faced? I mean, in the end, even the small movements he tried to make brought him down, didn't they? The first time I was arrested was for selling a newspaper. The newspaper was banned, and as, as part of the public defence of the Special Powers Act, we decided to take an initiative and go out in public and sell the newspaper. The Sinn Féin organisation rebranded itself as Republican Clubs and held a meeting. And 
the Republican clubs were banned the next the next day. So uh, I, at a human level, I can have some sympathy with Terence O'Neill, but what 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 they were being asked to do was simple, reasonable, and modest. And the government in London was complicit in all of this. You see, I, I don't think you can understand anything about Irish affairs unless you see it in the context of English involvement in Irish affairs. So this state is a partitioned, and those days it was an apartheid state. Uh, that has changed as a result of the work of a lot of very, very good good people. So Terence O'Neill, of course, he has responsibility and he may have done his best in his own, his own way. But the London Parliament is, by its own claim, the sovereign parliament. So how could London preside over a situation where a section of people within the British state was being treated on, on the basis that people were being treated? So let's talk about a bit of London then. Thatcher in a word, Major in a word, Blair in a word. Thatcher was actually talking to Republicans through a back channel while she was making arrogant denunciations and saying she would never talk to Republicans. That, that, that happened during the first hunger strike, it happened during the second hunger strike, and then happened subsequently. But what did, what did you make of them all? What, what was your character assessment of those three leaders? Well, well let, let me deal with the easy one, if I can use that term first. Tony Blair made a difference. You know, I, I would grievously disagree with his adventures in Iraq and other foreign affairs issues. But on this issue, he made a huge difference. And Alistair and uh, Jonathan and the team that were in at that time made uh, a difference. So he, he deserves great credit. John Major was handed a peace process on a plate and didn't accept it. Now, arguably, he was a minority government. He didn't. He was dependent on union support and so on. But, you know, th- there's this thing, and I hope this doesn't sound racist, this thing which I describe every so often as the English disease, which, when it comes to Ireland, these senior people are just totally oblivious of the needs, the rights, the demands, the aspirations of Ireland. You don't think John Major did accept that you had some legitimate claims in the area of equality and human rights? Well, he may have, but what did he do about it? Mm. John Hume and I came up with what became known as the Hume-Adams Agreement, Mm -hmm. and uh, the... Taoiseach of the day, the Irish Prime Minister of the day, Albert Reynolds, gave that to John Major. And uh, the Downing Street Declaration arose out of that. But the Downing Street Declaration, and both John and I made this point, it didn't go far enough. It, you know, it didn't deal with the, the core, because what we needed was all of these equality guarantees and uh, human rights Protections, but we also needed the constitutional issue resolved. Mm. Back to this business about an alternative. So now there is an alternative, Rory. Now, if the people here want, they can vote to leave. How do you, at a, at a human level, deal with the the question of of death and victims and meeting families of people who who lost loved ones? How, how have you, over time, thought about? How did you think about it in the seventies? How do you deal with it now? If a mother stops you in the street and, and wants to raise the horrors of what her family went through, how do you deal with that as a person? Well, I, 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 I have met many, many, many families of victims of the conflict, including victims of the IRA. And not all victims or not all victims' families respond the same way. Some are the very, very best peacemakers. 
very, very best pioneers for peace. Some are still hurt. Some have been fractured and never recovered. So I, I try to deal with all of this in a very respectful way and listen. You've got to listen. And I try to do that. Now, I, I come from a community. I have two family members were killed. I was shot myself. I'm advised that there's a live death threat against me at this time. My, my home was bombed twice. So it isn't an academic thing. I, I, I know what it's like to attend a funeral or to be at a, a, a wake house. So the big thing is that uh, now all of that has ended. So we, we can't undo it. And obviously if people have resentments, that's, that's fair enough. That's, that's their right. How, how do you feel about the Legacy Bill and, and what they're trying to do with that? I think it's shameful. Just quickly explain what the Legacy Bill is to listeners, because not everybody's aware of it. The bill that our government has brought forward to try to deal with some of the outstanding issues of violence at the time. And the idea is to effectively have an amnesty? They're, they, well, what they're doing is they're defending their own operatives. Mm. Now, I mean, there are two issues to this. First of all, there was an agreement, the Stormont House Agreement. The British government were party to that. They've torn it up. They brought in this new bill. It's at the behest of Northern Ireland veterans. It's at the behest of right-wing Tories and uh, others who are from that little Englander mentality. And they, they have just torn it up because they don't want to see British operative soldiers, police officers, going through that process. But every single political party here is against what they're doing. The Labour Party are against what they're doing. You know, there are elements of the Tory Party who are against what they're, they're doing. It's just, it's just terrible stuff. I noticed you didn't actually answer me about, about Thatcher, really, apart from that. When, when the Brighton bomb happened, would you have been happy if the entire cabinet had been wiped out? Happiness is not a term, or hobby is not a term that I would use. Would you have welcomed their demise? I don't want to get into that type of, come back to what Rory observed, that type of rhetoric. The fact is, there was a war. You know? Margaret Thatcher was notorious, not just for her presiding over the deaths of the hunger strikers, which could have been easily resolved by very simple improvements in the prison regime, but also because she was up front and she was being the Iron Lady and she was masquerading as somebody who was indomitable and and so on and so forth. So there, there would be very few tears shed for Margaret Thatcher in Republican Ireland or in many villages and Wales or in working class uh, neighbourhoods in Scotland or England itself, you know. But it's done, you know, it's it's over, it's it's gone. All of that's in the, in the past. Just on the, you were against the hunger strikes. Yeah, yeah. And yet they became a incredibly powerful symbol, if you like, of, the, of what you were trying to do at that time. Just talk us through your thinking on that. First of all, we were trying to do what I have described earlier, to build a, a Sinn Féin party and also to try and develop within Republicanism a peace strategy. So we were trying to do that. And there's a war going on at the same time. And that was incredibly challenging. So to, if you like, hand the entire struggle over to prisoners with such high stakes. And then particularly when the first hunger strike ended, and the first hunger strike ended in some contention where the prisoner in charge was told that there was a deal on its way and he, he agreed 
to, to end the hunger strike. And then that was seen as a sign of weakness by the Thatcher regime and a sign of weakness by elements within the prison system. And despite valiant efforts by Bobby Sands to make that work, it didn't work. So my, my thinking and the thinking of others was that uh, we, we couldn't have a repeat of what happened the first time. It was strategic and it was tactically something. And that also, these are our friends. I mean, I talked about being in prison. I was in prison with some of these folks. You know, these are our friends. And it ended up, as you know, famously, uh, I mean, a watershed in Irish political struggle. Jerry, I just, just come back. I mean, I, I joined the British Army in 91 and my first barracks uh, Clive Barracks had been blown up by the IRA two years earlier in 1989. So I was living next to the building. Where, where were you? In Shropshire, Turnhill in Shropshire, right, Clive right, Barracks right. in Shropshire. And I was listening to your answer on the, on the Brighton bombing. And I guess some listeners will feel like me, a real disquiet with your answer, because they'll feel, you know, amongst those people killed were just wives of Tory MPs going to a Conservative Party conference, going to bed in a Brighton hotel, and they blown up that it, it's that it isn't what most people think of as a war when I guess maybe this listeners will feel that these weren't legitimate combatants well maybe I could take that from the families but I couldn't take it from a former British soldier <laughs> the people in my house weren't combatants people in my street weren't combatants well I mean I feel I was a legitimate combatant I mean I, I wouldn't have taken it too personally course, if you'd had a shot I, at me I know, but, but I never went to war you came to me you know, you came in and cargo and but, tanks. But, but in retrospect, you don't feel there's a there was a distinction between kind of wise MPs going to a conference and somebody like Look, me. I, I, I think, including including, let me say this: the deaths of British soldiers or RUC officers. I think all those deaths are be are to be regretted. It's a regrettable part of our history, and and clearly, uh, civilians. Uh, for them to be killed, it doesn't matter whether it was accidental or not. That's even more regrettable. And thankfully, we're now out of out of all of that, and and we need to learn the lessons of it. Because I mean, what what's happening in Palestine now? What's happening in the Sudan? What's happening in Iraq? What's happening in Ukraine? You know, what happened here? It's, it's not that long. I I lived thirty years under military occupation. How long were you in the British Army? Very short time. There you go. You were very smart. (laughs) You've had a pretty remarkable political success. Your political strategy has got you to a position where if the institutions are up and running, Sinn Féin would be running the show, First Minister. You've got Mary Lou MacDonald on the brink of becoming T-shirt, possible. Do you not think there are lessons? You mentioned some of these other struggles going around the world. Do you not think there are lessons for other organizations that are involved in sometimes violent struggle that from your political strategy and i wondered if you thought that what you thought those those might be well first of all we 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 have been successful politically but we still haven't got our main objective which is to end the union with uh, england and obviously that will be assisted if Sinn Féin continues to grow in strength i think there are lessons not just for other people in struggle but for other governments see it takes two to tango so it, it, it took, as I said before, the leadership of Tony Blair on the one hand, of Bertie Hearn on the other hand, of President Clinton, as well as John Hume and you know all the folks involved, as well as those of us who were in Republican uh, leadership. And you know, Mark McGuinness has has gone to many of these conflict zones, 
and talk to people and you know we can't preach to them you know it's not up to us to dictate what they should uh, do Jerry, Jerry how did how did Ian Paisley come on site I, I, I'd love to understand the politics of this it seems to me from a distance that his political interests his party he could have had a future in just remaining obdurate and refusing to join in because there would have been many unionists that would have celebrated him First of all, and I, I have commended David Trimble, who was the first first minister from the unionist position. But it was up and down with David, and it wasn't tenable, and he, he couldn't get his own party in order. So we decided that we would try and get Ian Paisley into that position. Now, we were in the, the Northern Assembly with him, so we were across the chamber, and we were moderating our differences in that way. And we advised the two governments. I advised Tony Blair that we were going to try and do something with the NPC. I, I took about 18 months, close to two years. The method that we devised was to remove every obstacle he put up so that at the end of it, he would have no option but to decide to go in or not. And we thought uh, he would decide to go in because, one, he wanted to be in that position of power. And two, we noticed across the chamber that he was listening to some of the things that we were saying. That there was a sort of, I'm not saying there was a, an accord, but there was, you know, you could you could get a sense of relationships sort of being developed. And it would take me too long to describe all the, the promulgations to get all of that in place. But he did famously go in with Martin McGuinness. And it feels like a sort of miracle, presumably something that in the in the late 60s, early 70s, you would never have been able to imagine. No, but, but neither would they have been able to imagine a Republican like Martin McGuinness <laughs> been in the same position. So sometimes people can, you know, surprise each other in a good way. And, you know, it, it comes back down to the divisions in Ireland are very artificial, as are most divisions between human beings. And, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but a lot of people have much, much more in common than they may, they may think. So Ian, at the ripe old age of whatever age he was, came in and did a decent job and cheered people up and... Martin worked with him, and I, I think, I mean, Martin made a sterling contribution to the whole struggle and to the whole peace process. But in fairness to Ian Paisley, he, he, he did very, very well. And you know, we were talking there, understandably, about the number of people who have been killed. There have been half a million people born in this statelet since the Good Friday Agreement. So unless they had personal family connection to conflict, they have no memory. You, you walk about here, all these young kids, you know, they've they no memory of it. They're, they're living on a totally conflict-free zone. So that, that's the great, uh, you know, if you want an achievement, and there's lots of achievements, but that's, that's the big singular achievement that those young people. And also that there are people now out there who would otherwise be dead if, if the conflict had continued. You did say not that long ago that the conflict could have gone on forever. And we've had recently the death of so-called state knife infiltrator from the security services. What's your sense of how deeply your organisations were infiltrated by the security services? Well, well we, we always worked on the basis that, you know, the, the, the special branch was set up in Britain against the Fenians. And one of their tactics was to recruit agents and informers. So you always work on the basis that... Uh, that there are people there who are, they've been tricked, they've been blackmailed, they've been coerced, or they've been paid to work for the British or to work for 
intelligence services. You work on that. that that's the life that you live, you know. So how bad does, has anything emerged from that story that's, that's, that shocked, surprised you? No, not at all. You get to know as you go along. Like our, our car was bugged. Our, we famously brought a bug back to Leeds Castle to get back to Tony Blair. I remember you found him and said, I'm sorry to bug you with this. Yeah, we found it in Connolly House. So you, you work, you just, you just get to the point. Interestingly enough, uh, in castle buildings, and you'll vouch for this, Alistair, Everybody presumed that castle buildings was bugged. I mean, I mean even, even government ministers that they wanted to talk to you took you to one side. So that's, that's just part of part of where you are, and that's the way it works. And that's one of the reasons why the British have brought in this shameful uh, mm. bill because you're still doing the same things in other parts of the world. Jerry, final one for me. We, we go round and round this stuff, but I'm interested in. In the end, why outsiders came in. in. Many of the conflicts I've seen around the world, people would say that they don't want outsiders getting in. It's an internal issue. They want to resolve it themselves. They're not interested in Finnish presidents turning up and U.S. presidents I, I think that up. was one of, Rory, one of our big successes. The, the mantra of the British government was, this is an internal matter for the government of the United Kingdom. Piss off. So they told that to everybody, Right. And uh, President Clinton's intervention then opened up the possibility. And, you know, the, the, the politics of President Clinton are not that dissimilar from the politics of Tony Blair and so on and so forth. And then that made it easier because when, once George Mitchell was put in as a special envoy, then you need another special envoy. And then the, these other countries, the Nordic countries or Canada, have all peace mission histories. So I, I think that was one of our two internationalizers and that, that's something we worked on to some degree, plagiarizing the African National Congress's campaign against apartheid was to make it an international issue. So I, I think that was one of the great successes. And incidentally, you can still see that this very day that we're talking, because here we are, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, and we've had two American presidents in town. And we've had the, the American Secretary of State in town, and they still retain that very, very active uh, interest. You and I attended a, a dinner recently at, at Hillsborough Castle, uh, and I've seen you there many, many times before when the negotiations were going on, but this was quite a kind of grand, lavish dinner in the newly refurbished Hillsborough Castle, and there was a new portrait of the new king on the wall. And I'm, I, just, I was just looking at you in the, during the dinner and trying to get a sense of, of how you feel in those kind of moments when you're absolutely at the heart of the, the British establishment in a way. And although you've made all this political progress, you still haven't, as you say, achieved that objective. So what's your sense of your own relationship now with this place, with the British government, and where you think you are on that road to that final destination you've always wanted? Well, I, I, first of all, I spent a huge amount of time in Hillsborough Castle mm-hmm. uh, when Mo Molan was there. Mm-hmm. I spent nearly every Sunday, and we walked in the grounds, and uh, I did the same with David Trimble. David had most of our private conversations up, up, up there, and we went right through to Peter Mandelson, and I forget, there were so many secretaries of state, I can't remember their names. Uh, so, so, so I became quite f- familiar with it, and I supported a lot Moe's efforts to make it a public park, which she succeeded in doing. So what's my relationship with it, right? The first time I went into Dublin Castle, I was shocked as a young West Belfast person to see that the old symbols of the empire 
are still in the Great Hall in Dublin Castle. They're still kept there, right? And then when I went into South Africa and into the Parliament, this was when after apartheid had been got rid of, the Afrikaner symbols were still there. And I remember actually saying to Madiba, what was the story? And he said, we're keeping them. We're certainly going to keep them for a time because we don't want the Afrikaner people to think that we're robbing them of all these symbols. Mm -hmm. So I can live with that, provided there's some parody. We're in a transition. There is change ongoing. And people particularly who have been here maybe 20 years ago, coming in, will see the changes more readily than those of us who live here. So there's there's a process of change underway. I think we're in a phase which needs quiet persuasion, quiet, gentle, proactive listening to invite those people who may be pro-union or who may be a bit dilatory about the future to come over to the notion of why can't we govern ourselves? Do you worry that the reason for the blockage in the, in the institutions is as simple as the fact that the DUP find it quite difficult with the fact that Sinn Féin would have the first minister? I think some do, but I believe Jeffrey when he says it's not a problem for him. I believe him. He said it's not a problem for me, Michelle, being uh, the first minister. So I, I believe that from him. But it's undoubtedly a problem for some. The, the, this state was constructed so that that would never happen. So will there be a United Ireland in your lifetime? Depends how long uh, I live in or how long I'm stuck in this interview, wasting my life. (laughs) (laughs) Jerry Adams, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) How did that feel then, uh, Jerry Adams telling you that it was very wise that you didn't stay in the army too long? Did you feel slightly menaced? Well, I I felt the thing that troubled me most, of course, wasn't him threatening a British soldier was fine. Um, It's more the fact that even with all this time, he still does not feel that the civilian casualties were unjustified. So in particular, I mean, Brighton bombing, these were people who just simply happened to be married to politicians staying in a conference hotel. And that, I think, has always been very odd. But I think um, it's, it's always been something at the heart of the problem. I mean, the IRA presented itself as an army, but was totally unapologetic about deliberately targeting civilians. And armies, of course, do kill civilians, but they do not set about deliberately blowing up a hotel full of civilians. Deliberately, right? I mean, they they may do so unintentionally. And I, I think it's very, very odd that not only do they do that, but that even decades later, they're so completely unapologetic about it. We didn't talk about Mountbatten, which was another very dramatic example of a a retired 80-year-old admiral with his grandson and his daughter-in-law on the boat, and a, a young Irishman who just happened to be piloting the boat, all of whom were, were burnt up and killed. That, by the way, is, is a big part of the book I mentioned, Killing Thatcher, is the, is the Mountbatten story. Um, I mean, I think, look, not for me to speak for Jerry Adams, I think what Jerry Adams would say is that Mountbatten was a, a representative of the British establishment and the British forces that were he saw as an occupying force i think except he was 80 years old wasn't he he was completely you know he's an 80 year old retired man with his grandchildren in it but they had they had a lot of focus when they when they were pursuing that military strategy alongside the political strategy they had a lot of focus on what they call spectaculars brighton bomb would have been you know especially if it had taken out margaret thatcher that would have been the ultimate in terms of the spectacular for them so they they were 
significant in terms of their their overall strategy. And I am, if you think about it, the same day that we were speaking to Jerry Adams, he was in the audience, sitting in the hall, listening to, amongst others, Rishi Sunak, who actually mentioned him in relation to having taken a decision to to be part of a of the peace process, as it were. So if he were at any stage between when he was back then as active as he was to when he dies, if he was at any stage to come out and say, yeah, do you know what? I was a IRA commander. I was, in, I was on the army council. I was doing all this stuff. Then I don't know. I guess he thinks that you've lived with that fiction for so long and other people have accepted that fiction up to the point of a Tory it's, prime it's minister. It's very odd, isn't it? The, the, and it, there's also his manner. He's this very sort of genial, um, sort of almost professorial figure. I showed a picture of us with him and somebody said he, he looked like Father Christmas. And it's that sort of reconciling that with with terrorism is is tough. But equally, you know, we have to agree with your friend Jonathan Powell, who said to us when we were in Belfast, as he said many times in the past, you only get peace by negotiating with terrorists. And mm. that it was absolutely the right thing to do in the end to negotiate with him and bring him and Martin McGuinness in. I mean, I, I was also been reading the most extraordinary book on the Protestant experience um, in Ireland, which again, I'm, I'm going to put in the feed, but that was a real reminder about Protestant violence and, and Ian Paisley's extraordinary evolution, which we touched on a little bit in that. And it, it's a pity that we're, we're not able to interview Ian Paisley to get some sense of this transformation. Jonathan Powell, your friend, says that it was a near-death experience in hospital that convinced him that he wanted to suddenly come to peace and that we should never underestimate the individual factors in bringing peace. Essentially, the other people who were in the room with Jerry Adams and Richard McCauley, his, his, who's been alongside him for as long as I can remember, was of, as you say, quite hard to reconcile that persona with somebody who's, for a lot of people, still such a sort of massive hate figure. But I think you do have to recognize that without him and McGuinness, it, it wouldn't have happened. None of what we were witnessing last week would have happened. Has he changed a lot over the time, or is that pretty much what you remember when you were first dealing with him 25 years ago? I always found Martin McGuinness very kind of easy to talk to, very more straightforward in a way. I, I think Jerry Adams has become more reflective. I think he's become warmer in the way that he engages with, with other people. Yeah, I would say a, a, a much more empathetic human being. So even though you are seeing a lack of empathy in his inability to recognize the the hurt and the and the pain caused, other than through the context of the, we were at war and that you started it as it were, I actually think in in more general terms, he actually has become a much more uh, empathetic human being. Right. The book that I wanted to recommend is by a journalist called Susan Mackay, and it's called Northern Protestants and Unsettled People. And it's a series of interviews done, she, she's herself an Ulster Protestant, with everybody from people in very tough housing estates who are actually actively involved in the paramilitary violence, right the way through to housewives in wealthy suburbs of Belfast who have nothing to do with the violence at all. It, it's, it's like V.S. Naipaul's writing on India. Um, it's extraordinary her ability to bring forward all these different perspectives and somehow layer them over each other. 
resolve the, the lurches of defining an incredibly complicated society, which has hundreds of thousands of different experiences going on. I, I, I've, I found it so moving. Just um, the, another thing to mention, Mary McAleese, former Irish president, an incredible woman. And she did a, a radio series some years ago called The Protestant Mind. She was raised as a Catholic in a pretty Protestant part of Belfast. And she did a very, very interesting radio series. So maybe we should try and dig that out as well and put it in the, uh, in the newsletter. Very good. Okay. Well, there we are. Yet another prominent historical figure to whom I've introduced you, Rory. You'll find me some soon to to return the compliment, I trust. <laughs> the problem is you know absolutely everybody. So even the people when I'm closer friends <laughs> to them than you are, you already know them. <laughs> <laughs> See you soon. Bye-bye from me.